Let us now give attention to the public reading of God's holy word as we find it in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, uh, reverently reading verses 4 to 6, uh, the word of the Lord. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. May God bless the reading of the scripture. And let's now go before God again in prayers for the needs of the church and for the great need of the hour that is before us that we would meet him reverently faithfully in the scriptures. One could argue that the pressing need of the hour in our culture is many things. Some people would say we need more education. Some people say we need more government. Some people say we need more entertainment. But the pressing need of the hour, it seems to me, from the text in Scripture, and as I look at the Word of God as a whole, <clears throat> is a recovery of the, the Christian mind. Obviously, I taught in academia for 25 years in a small college in western Pennsylvania, Grove City College, where it was our pleasure to devise a curriculum that was designed to have the freshmen, as they come in Grove City College, to develop a Christian mind. It was called a class in worldview. Uh, worldview is a very popular term that is thrown around now. And by the term worldview, we are talking about our, our basic convictions, our basic ideas, our basic uh, uh, presuppositions. And we tried, uh, through the 25 years that I was there, to try to have the students understand that no matter what discipline they went into, and there was a multitude of disciplines at the liberal arts college. Uh, they could go into teaching. They could go into science. They could become biologists, physicists. They could go into the field of engineering. They could enter education. Some of their courses were pre-med. And so therefore, when you look at the vast variety of tasks that lie ahead of students that are 18 and 19 years old, what would you want them to go to work equipped with? What would you want them to have as a means by which they might not only serve their Lord, but also contribute to the common good? Uh, Grove City College was a Christian college, and uh, though there was no profession of faith that was required, uh, the faculty were committed to the, the scriptures, the faculty were committed to the fact that there is such a thing as Christian calling no matter where you go, that there's not something special about the minister, the missionary, the youth worker, but that all callings are sacred. Perhaps first enunciated by Martin Luther in the Reformation, certainly picked up by Calvin and continued uh, throughout the rest of the Reformed faith, that, that life itself is a calling from God by which you can serve him no matter what you do. Calvin once said, the, the cobbler is as important as the king. 
because he makes shoes to the glory of God. But I'd like to address the issue of, of the Christian mind this morning, looking at the Old Testament, looking at what is found in certain verses from Proverbs, Solomon's wisdom. Then I'd like to look at a few texts from Jesus' teaching, how did he use his mind, and then finally finish up with Paul and what he adds to what is already present in the Old Testament and already presumed in the preaching and teaching of Jesus. So with these factors in mind, we are asking the question, what is the biblical view of the mind? Well, perhaps the first thing to say is that from the very beginning, we were created by God in his image, capable of thinking his thoughts after him. And in that light, God revealed to our first parents there are requirements to till the garden and keep it. That assumes an understanding of what it means to till a garden and keep it. That they were to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From this we learned that man had not only a rational capacity, but he also had a moral will, which he could exercise in, in conjunction with his rational capacity. And of course, we know what happened, that Adam and Eve were disobedient, claiming to, be, to seek the wisdom that can come only from a disobedient source. Our race fell into sin. But look at how far we have come since then. Look at the fact that God gave our first parents culture in the omega, in the alpha condition, and with the injunction to rule and exercise dominion to take creation to the omega condition, as one theologian had put it. And look at the advances that we have made. But we still have to ask the question, what is the wisdom that makes this possible? What is the mind that is capable of taking that which God has given us and shaping and forming it so that what we do glorifies God and benefits mankind? So let's turn to Solomon in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon sets the tone for all that the Scripture has to say about wisdom. And in this very short sentence, and in other sentences in the book of Proverbs, we have Solomon's wisdom as to what it is. In Proverbs verse one, chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and understanding. Biblical wisdom begins with the marriage of the head and the heart. Biblical wisdom assumes that we have a mind which is capable of knowing. But notice that the mind that is capable of knowing real wisdom begins with uh, the fear of the Lord because fools despise wisdom and understanding. In other words, the Christian mind is a submissive mind. The Christian mind is not an autonomous entity. The, the Christian mind is not self-sufficient. The Christian mind acknowledges that there is a sovereign God to whom 
That mind is to be obedient. The Christian mind begins with a humble attitude which honors God, and we are to to put away the mindset of the fool because they despise wisdom and understanding. And so therefore we have a trajectory from the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord to the absolute rejection of that. And one is wisdom and the other is foolishness. We also learn in Psalms that the, the, the fool is the one who says there is no God. So therefore, knowledge is rooted in fear. But what kind of fear is it? It's not the fear that panics. It's not the fear that strikes terror, like perhaps our first fear of the dark or fear of someone under the bed. The the fear that we're talking about here is, is a fear that is reverential, a fear that is awestruck, a fear that acknowledges that we are not Lord of our own minds. We recognize that our mind is a gift from God, and therefore it's not self-sufficient. The fool rejects such a point of departure. The fool repudiates God's commandments. The fool lives a perilous existence because it despises knowledge and understanding. Another important feature of Proverbs' view of wisdom is that wisdom is not something that is impersonal and abstract because wisdom is personal. Wisdom is rooted in God. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is depicted as a female. Wisdom is someone who speaks. She uh, uh, cooks. She makes dinner. She does those things that make life better. So we find up that, that wisdom lifts up her voice. It's her word, not mine. Kings rule, princes reign, judges rule their, make their decisions because of wisdom, because of this personal aspect. In Proverbs, she accomplishes common tasks. She builds houses, she prepares food, she mixes her wine. One of the interesting texts from the book of Exodus is the text that after God has described to Moses what he wants the tabernacle to look like, he gives dimensions. He says what the materials are to be used. He says that it is to be of a certain size. He says that it is certain dimensions to it. But how is that to be put into fact? You can have all the dimensions, but you have to have what uh, Exodus says was given to a man by the name of Bezalel. In Exodus chapter 31, I have called by name Bezalel and filled him with the Spirit of God and given him ability, intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. He knew how to work with wood. He knew how to work with fabrics. He knew how to work with metals. That's a skill. That was a wisdom that was given to him by God. And so we we find by this example that that wisdom is not simply data. Wisdom is not simply facts. Wisdom involves a working out of something. And the whole book of Proverbs is to show us what is a wise way to live. But for Bezalel, his wisdom was to be manifested by working with his hands. It was a gift of the Spirit. He knew what metals to use. He knew how to 
weave fabrics. He knew how to carve wood, and he had a, the help of a holiab so that what was given merely as facts but was put into a beautiful tabernacle with all of the beautiful things that were curtains and f- fabrics and poles and, and uh, uh, other articles that were to be found w- within the tabernacle. In a way, what we see in Bezalel and Aholiab is a manifestation of what John tells us in his first gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 4, we learn that the God who was, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 4, he says, In him was light, and the life was the light of men. The Lagos lights up all people in the mind. And he goes on to say in in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light which lights every person was coming into the world. So not only Bezalel, Aholiab, but any human being who has ever lived is to a certain extent given the light to understand, given the means by which we understand and grasp meaning. Bezalel and Aholiab happen to be craftsmen. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways in which that wisdom can be shown. Wisdom, therefore, is something public. In Proverbs 1.21, wisdom is something broader than individual thoughts. We find that wisdom cries aloud in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates of the city, she utters her sayings. The gates of a city was the public meeting place. If you ever go to Israel and you go to the site of Dan in the northern part of the Holy Land, you will see set into the wall of the city a seat where the judge sat. And that was where court was held. And so therefore, when wisdom cries in the street, when wisdom gives her utterances through means of public judges, that these are the means by which God is ruling. Isn't it interesting that Calvin devoted the fourth book of his institutes to government as a means of grace? Not just the sacraments, not just the preaching of the word, but government is a means by which God's grace is manifested through rule of people who rule wisely. So the gates of the city was where this business was transacted. It was where court was held. And therefore, the, 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 the place of wisdom is in public life. So wisdom is not something individual. It's something private, something locked up within your head. Wisdom was out there in the world. Where is it? Well, uh, wisdom is obviously where teachers teach. But wisdom is also where artists paint. Wisdom is where doctors diagnose diseases and perform surgery. Wisdom is where engineers design bridges. Wisdom is where architects draw schematics. Wisdom is manifested in the healing arts. Wisdom is a public matter, and it is manifested in all of the various callings that we can be called to as Christians. It's where politicians hammer out public policy. It's where professors practice the Socratic method. There is not a place in the world where knowledge is going on, where where God's wisdom, as common as it may be, is manifested in in people's lives. 
in 2016, we would adhere to wisdom's cry. Listen to the text of the Bible. If you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, if you cry for discernment, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So Solomon sets the stage by his proverb as to what a biblical view of the Christian mind would look like. It is subservient. It listens. It hears. But what it hears, it puts into practice. The way that what might be given as a, a profound way in a, by a professor is also present when a mother and a father teach the child how to pray. The biblical wisdom is that which begins with the fear of the Lord but is manifested in all manner of calling and occupation. So the Old Testament view of the Christian mind. Jesus' life and teaching as addressing the issue of the Christian mind. How did Jesus use his mind? The only story that we have of Jesus' youth is the story where he and his parents go to Jerusalem to at the when he was 12 years old, he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you all, I'm sure, remember the story that after the Passover was celebrated, his parents assumed that Jesus was in the crowd returning and uh, why they should wait for three days and not miss him. We'll just pass over that in passing. But the, the point is, when they go back and find Jesus, where was he? He wasn't hanging out with the teenagers. He wasn't listening to music in the uh, coffee shop. He wasn't doing all kinds of things that teenagers might do. He was in the temple. And he was in the temple, and he was listening, and he was speaking with the elders. And he was speaking at such a level that at the age of 12, they marveled at what he said. Now, we, we run into bright teenagers. But here, clearly, Jesus, from the very earliest times, Jesus had a wisdom that surpassed his peers. And he submitted that wisdom to the understanding of others. Now, notice how Luke finishes that passage. After Jesus goes home with his parents, he grew up in the wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The very Son of God submits himself to his parents. The Son of God learns a trade. The Son of God is taught how to pray. That's a mystery that uh, we can never fully fathom. But, but Jesus grew up as an ordinary person, but he knew who he was from the very earliest of times. I must be about my father's business. And so we learn that from the very earliest stage, Jesus used his mind to the glory of God. But we find that throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus was challenged in his mind because the challenges came almost all the time. Our scripture tells us in Matthew 22 several instances where Jesus is confronted with an intellectual problem that the problem was submitted to him in intelligible form, 
and demanded an intelligible answer. And so therefore, Jesus' mind was being challenged, and Jesus used his mind as a way of answering. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? I promise not to tell any lawyer jokes, but this lawyer was not up to any good at all. In fact, the text says that he asked this question to test Jesus. He was going to put the Son of God to a test. He was going to put the Son of Man to a test. And so he asked the question of the commandments, what's the greatest? Well, there have been various kinds of ways in which people have understood that. One commentator said, of the over 680 Old Testament commandments, how can you ever single out one as most important? But that's, of course, exactly what Jesus did. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might. But Jesus adds something. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, that does not mean that there are various compartments that make up human nature. What Jesus is saying, you are to love the Lord your God with your whole being. And we can't exclude our mind from that part, which is to love God. How is it that you can love God with your mind? Solomon has already told us. We love God with our mind when we submit to his authority, when we submit to his word, when we carry out the wisdom that is given to us in the various occupations of life. So therefore, Jesus says this is the first and great commandment. He, he reprises what Solomon had said in this simple statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In Matthew 22, we also find another example of Jesus using his mind, and it's remarkable. It's interesting because it is about two subjects that in our society you're to avoid in public. In polite society, you should avoid politics, religion, and sex. The Jews pick out two of those three, religion and politics. Is it lawful, they, they said, say the Pharisees, do you think it is lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, that's still a hot topic. We're in the midst of a presidential election year, and there's all kinds of questions about what taxes will be like if certain, ta if certain candidates are elected. But this is an attempt to hoist Jesus upon the horns of a dilemma. When you're on the horns of a dilemma, there are two choices, and no matter which choice you make, you're going to be wrong to somebody. If he agrees that it's correct to pay taxes to Caesar, he's denying his Jewishness. If he says he should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he is under threat of arrest. And so therefore, that there, there was an attempt here to present a, an irreconcilable conflict here. And therefore, what answer will Jesus give? And we all remember what the answer was. C.S. Lewis made the comment once, that the New Testament Gospels uh, present a, Jew, uh, a, a, a Jesus who was shrewd in the way that he uh, announced things. And this is one of the more shrewd ways that Jesus announced it. He has to be given a coin, and he says, Render to Caesar that which are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
Now notice, the, the opponents of Jesus could have said several things. If you, because there are so many dimensions of life that we live in. We do live in a political dimension. We do live also in an economic dimension. We live in a societal dimension. We live in a family dimension. We participate in entertainment and sports and so forth. So there are all kinds of dimensions of life. So the question is, which one do you pay tribute to the most? And therefore, what Jesus is saying is there is one ultimate tradition. There's one ultimate commission that we have, and that is to render to God that which is God. What does God demand? God demands religion. Now, I'm using religion there in the classical sense. The, the word religion comes from the Latin word, which means to bind or commit. Therefore, religion is that to which you give your ultimate loyalty, your ultimate commitment, your, your ultimate binding. And therefore, God alone is to receive our ultimate commitment. But we also have commitments to family. We have commitments to our economic life. We have commitments to the political life. And these are all valid commitments. But they all subserve under the commitment that we have to God himself in terms of worship. And obviously, Jesus' remark has, has spawned debate down through the centuries. Popes and emperors argued over which one of them was to represent God the most in the Christian empire. Should it be the pope as the head of the church? Should it be the emperor as the head of the empire? And so therefore, when Jesus made this pronouncement, it's, it's a pronouncement that has stayed with us. We know that Christian wisdom owes to God and God alone the ultimate commitment of the heart. Other commitments follow in that regard. But we can draw several conclusions here from Jesus' use of the mind. We serve God by what we think. Thinking is every bit as important as praying. When we study, we worship him. There are all kinds of things that follow from what Solomon said and from what Jesus said about the use of the mind. But thirdly, Paul adds to this rich tradition. Paul adds in several of his texts uh, what it is to serve God with our mind. The book of Romans gives us perhaps the fullest account of the content of the Christian faith. We find in the letter to the Romans, the fall of man, we, fought, we find uh, that man is fallen in sin. We find that Adam uh, ended on a fallen human nature. We find that man is justified by faith. We find that man is sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 12, 1 and 2, Paul really addresses the issue again of the Christian mind. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's a framework by which all that we have studied before can now be carried to its ultimate extent. The mind, by the renewal of your mind, Therefore, it is possible, despite the fall, uh, that one can be, have a sanctified mind so that one really does think God's thoughts after him. 
The mind is something that is to be transformed by being renewed. This obviously signifies a conversion of the mind, a change of the mind. It signifies a, a, a repentance that has taken place. Now the word that Paul uses here for transforming a mind, it comes from the Greek word morphe. And the Greek word morphe means form. But when we usually hear the word form, we think of form as something that is external. The form of this pulpit, the form of this church, the form of the tree. But what Paul is using, when he uses the term morphe, he's not thinking of externals. He's thinking of something internal. He's thinking about the form of the mind and the heart that makes a person what they are. So that we can say of somebody who is doing well in any activity, he's in good form today. We're not talking about his outward thing. We're talking about what enables him to do the outward thing. We say that a, that a ball player is in good form. We say that an accountant is in good form. We say that a lecturer is in good form. We mean, we're saying that there's something internal that comes out through their expression of the gifts that God has given to them. And so therefore, the mind, the internal aspect of the mind, is to be shaped and formed so that it is renewed, so that it thinks God's thoughts uh, after him. I can't help but give an illustration from my own background, and, and that is uh, history. Uh, how is it that you can have a transformed mind in teaching history? Uh, I was a history major as, as an undergraduate, and uh, I decided in my sophomore year that I would take a course labeled the Reformation. I said, that's, um, I was a Christian. I wanted to know more about the Reformation. I'm going to get credit for it. Uh, what's not to like about that? So I went to the class on the first day. There were only five of us in the class. We were gathered, not in the classroom, but in the professor's office. And the professor said something that really greatly disturbed me. He said, I have absolutely nothing, no interest whatsoever in what Luther and Calvin thought religiously. But I am interested in the politics of the time. I am interested in the economics of the time. I am interested in the outworkings that came out of the Reformation. Well, I knew that I was not going to learn very much about Luther and Calvin. He, he spent the first week, half of the week on Luther, half the week on Calvin, and after that, we got down to the real business of history. I didn't know it at the time, but there's a term for that. When you treat religion in that way, when you treat theology in that way, it's an epiphenomenon. An epiphenomenon is a secondary phenomenon. It's a byproduct of something that is more real. To use an example from nature. If you've ever been on the coast where the waves beat up, not against the sand, but beat up against the rocks, you've got the real rocks, you've got the real water, and the action of the water against the rocks produces a foam that floats on the top, a kind of flotsam. The flotsam is an epiphenomenon. It's a byproduct of what happens when the real water hits the real rock. Now I realize flotsam is real too. But the, but the point is that uh, when something is treated epiphenomenally, it's treated as a byproduct of something that is more real. And, and what my historian teacher was saying is, 
You can be religious as long as you want, but you have to recognize that religion is a byproduct. It comes out of the culture. It comes out of politics. It's a byproduct of economics. It's a byproduct of, of social life. And so, and so therefore, there are so many times that uh, history is not taught with a Christian mind. I had a professor who loved the wars. Every time he taught history, he focused on the battle. You could almost hear, smell the cannon smoke. You could also hear, almost hear the cannon because he loved to talk about wars and how wars produce history. I went from Professor Flom's classroom to Professor Gates' classroom. Professor Gates never mentioned a war. I assumed he was a pacifist. But you see, his view of history was shaped by the fact that he didn't think that war was important. Flom thought that war was everything. And so therefore, the, the Christian is faced with the fact, if, if you are a Christian history teacher, or if you are taking a course in history, if you're a student today, you have to ask the question, what's real about history? That politics are real. Economics are real. Society is real. But the church is real. Theology is real. These are all part of God's revelation. And so therefore, as Christians teaching history, we dare not ignore politics. We dare not ignore social matters. We dare not uh, ignore the, the various aspects of our culture. But we have to present a full-orb view. And, and that was what was so wonderful about the Princeton theologians. They saw all of life as under God's sovereignty. And so therefore, they... they wrote a journal in which they had uh, articles, obviously about Bible and theology, but also about history, about science, about politics, about the Civil War, about what patriotism looked like. And so therefore, your uh, Christian mind will be full-orbed, and to have a renewed Christian mind is so crucial. Isn't it interesting that when Ken Burns wrote that produced that wonderful series on the Civil War. If you've never seen it, you ought to watch it. Ten versions of the Civil War. There's not a single version within that thing that mentions the church. There's not a single reference to revivals that have happened in the northern camps and in the southern camps. Ken Burns treated religion, treated theology, treated the church as an epiphenomenon. He was able either to, to uh, ignore it or dismiss it. We have to take all those things seriously. A Christian mind will integrate those. And if one goes to a Christian college and majors in history, he will see history as important because history contributes so much to our understanding of God's providence in the world. And isn't it interesting that the Christian faith is a historical faith? Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried, rose again three days later, historical, factual, and things that we have to understand with our mind. And therefore, when uh, scholars tell us that the crucifixion and resurrection are something that are to be assented to with the mind, they also have to be grasped by the heart, because that is where true wisdom and understanding of the gospel reside. But finally, Paul has something else to say about the Christian mind, and it's found in the passage that Phil read for us for our scripture lesson. Paul frequently spoke against the autonomy of human rationality. 
In Romans 1, he contended that unbelievers are without excuse because they changed the truth of God for a lie. Then God gave them over to all kinds of terrible behavior. They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. But in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 6, Paul uses some very graphic images. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What does they do? They destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and they take every thought captive to Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons that are physical in nature. The weapons of our warfare, because our warfare is spiritual, our weapons are spiritual. And therefore, when he says that we are to take every thought captive to Christ, that means that no matter what ideas you are thinking about, you are to take them in subservience to obedience to Christ. I think that there are basically four ways that we know. We know by reason, A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. We know some things by means of empirical study. What's the boiling point of water? We, we boil it and find out what the boiling point is. There are some other things that we know by intuition. How do you know that you're in love? How do you know that you exist? How do you know that you're awake right now? How do you know that in the next moment you're going to wake up and it's 1925, well, it's 2015? How do you know that you're awake right now? You don't reason it out. You don't measure it. You intuit it. There's an immediate awareness. And, and therefore, anybody who figures out that they want to get married by making a list of do's and don'ts and, and qualities and so forth, if, you, if that's the way you figure out you're in love, you're on the wrong page. You know, you, there's a, a, an immediate awareness of being in love. Now, what we need to do is to take each one of them captive for Christ. Reason needs to be kept captive by Christ. Science needs to be captive by Christ. Intuition needs to be held in captive to Christ. And, and therefore, there, there's a way in which we recognize that the weapons of our warfare are those by means of which we, we think and we argue. One of my favorite cartoons is Hagar the Horrible. Now, that may disabuse you of a certain opinion of me, but uh, uh, Hagar the Horrible is a boorish Viking. And he asks his son, all kinds of swords and knives, shields in the background. Um, how would you deal with a person who attacks you with a dagger? And the son says back to Hagar, I'd try reason. And hard, Hagar looks out at the reader and says, this is going to be tougher than I thought. Uh, the, the point is that uh, there, is a, there is a weapon to reason. There is a way in which we can use reason to the glory of God. He's, his reference here is to the strongholds of evil. This may reflect what Solomon says in Proverbs 21-22. A wise man seeks strong cities, cast down the stronghold in which the ungodly trusted. In other words, the ungodly, the unbeliever, builds around him or herself a stronghold of arguments, a stronghold of ideas by which they shield themselves from the gospel. 
They resist the truth. And it is these strongholds, it is these wheels, uh, it is these walls, it, it is these fortifications that we, by the power of the, uh, using the power of the Scripture, using the sword of the Spirit, we're to attack them so that the strongholds come down and the person is exposed as a sinner so that they repent and turn from their autonomy, turn from their idolatry. So just as Jesus formulated arguments against his opponents, so Paul also reasoned and argued with his hearers. In Acts chapter 9, Paul kept increasing in strength, this is right after his conversion, and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In chapter 18, verse 4, Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and when Paul was challenged by Festus in Acts 26 as being out of his mind, how did Paul respond? I am not out of my mind, but I utter words of sober truth. Paul defended himself using arguments. Paul defended himself going back to his conversion. And every sermon that Paul gives in the book of Acts has the resurrection as its central point. Paul used the resurrection to break down strongholds. Paul used his preaching as a way of breaking down fortifications, as a way of finding entrance into the non-Christian heart. We conclude from Jesus and Paul and, of course, Solomon, that the Christian mind submits to the love of God. It is transformed. It is renewed. It is a means by which we serve God and serve the world. It's a result of believing the gospel. And therefore, Paul says we must reject all those things that are against God and we must take their thoughts captive to Christ. I don't know what strongholds you face this year, this week, in the coming days ahead, but you will face strongholds. You will face defenses. You will face blasphemy. You will face disbelief. And how do we approach that? We approach it with confidence that the gospel is powerful, that the wisdom of God is stronger than the wisdom of man, that it's through the foolishness of preaching that the gospel makes entrance into people's hearts. And as we come to the Lord's table, we realize that he not only feeds us through his word, but now he feeds us by means of the Lord's table by which we are fed and we are encouraged to go into the world today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how wonderfully to be encouraged by your word this day that you have given us minds, minds that are capable of following your thoughts after you, but also minds that are submissive, minds that are obedient, minds that do not live in pride and arrogance, minds, O oh Lord, that seek your face and want to do your will. And so we pray for your grace this day. And as we go into the world that you have given us to serve, that we might do so with courage. In Jesus' name we pray.